Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This is episode number two, and I'm your host, Andrew Kopian. This podcast focuses on helping Canadian physiotherapists in their clinical practice and careers. And if you haven't heard of Ignite Physio before, it's a free community-driven website for physiotherapists where you can ask and answer practice questions, find useful articles, and access a data bank of reviewed clinical resources. In today's episode, I interview Maureen Dwight. She's a physiotherapist and MSK clinical specialist. We had a great chat about her work in spinal rehabilitation. And specifically, we talked about scoliosis, and she answers the question of when does scoliosis really matter? It's a great topic and one that I think helps clarify some key questions when it comes to scoliosis patients that you may see in the clinic. So let's jump right in. So I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Uh, today's guest is Maureen Dwight, and she's the founder and clinic director at the Orthopedic Therapy Clinic in Toronto. She's the co-founder of the Spine Therapy Network, and she's also been designated as an NSK clinical specialist by the CPA. Um, her areas of interest include chronic neck, back, and post-operative spinal conditions, and she has extensive experience with adolescent and adult scoliosis, including both non-operative and post-operative rehab. Uh, she's studied with Dr. Rudolf Weiss out of Germany and received her certification in a scoliologic method, as well as studying with the renowned Czech physician, Dr. Vladimir Janda. So welcome to the show, Maureen. Thank you. Yes. You yeah. So before we dive into uh, sort of the topic of scoliosis today, I'm just, you know, curious to know sort of how you're spending your time nowadays. Are you still seeing patients? What, what sort of keeps you busy? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm uh, running a clinic and we have about five physiotherapists with us, but I still see clients about 70% of the day. Oh, wow. okay. um, I'm doing a bit of work for the, um, the Ontario government as well in screening patients, <clears throat> excuse me, for high risk uh, issues of chronicity and back pain. So uh, yeah, still very actively involved in treatment. Obviously, you know, we've uh, talked a little bit beforehand about, you know, really keeping this focused around scoliosis. And I think one of the big questions we have uh, with scoliosis is when does it matter? And I know that's something that I've often wondered in the clinic uh, and in practice. And so I think that's really sort of the overarching theme for our listeners today. And, and before we sort of dive into that, I just want to curious to know sort of what got you interested in spinal conditions and, and specifically scoliosis? Um, well, spinal conditions was sort of probably like many therapists, you sort of fall into an area and sometimes you don't actually, it's an area you don't even think you'll get involved in. Mm. Um, so I had back pain when I was 15, 16. We didn't uh, understand how to treat it at that point. Um, it got me into physio, but I more thought I'd probably go into sports medicine or something along that line. At one point, I got really interested in uh, neurology and neurosurgery. Um, and then I went to work with a clinic that did a lot of spine um, uh, area and really found I liked it. And what I really liked about it was the intersection of uh, neurology and orthopedics. And uh, what I found was that what I'd learned in uh, neurology actually worked better in these clients than it ever did work in my neurological clients and that I made a bigger difference in their life. And then I was lucky enough to study with um, some amazing people and it just kept developing and that mentorship I think kept me going in that direction. Hmm. And so what, uh, what do you feel uh, physio's comfort level right now is with scoliosis and treating scoliosis? Uh, it's, it's not very high and it's not high for a number of reasons. Um, particularly in North America, 
it's not an accepted thing for physios to do. Mm. And up until recently, it's actually been discouraged. So uh, there's been a couple of uh, really good reviews recently. There's one by Cindy Marty, who um, uh, reached out to what's called SOSORT, and they are a combination of surgeons, uh, clinicians, and patients in a uh, scoliosis group. And um, she surveyed the surgeons and basically found that they don't refer, which doesn't really surprise us. Um, and then um, Eric Perrault out of uh, U of Alberta, he uh, did a survey of uh, physios in Alberta and found that basically of the group who responded, the response was so poor that it actually um, sort of colored the study a little bit because uh, we didn't even get an idea of how many people don't see it because we probably we figured that people didn't respond because they didn't think it was important. So, uh, and even of the groups that responded, the majority have never received a referral for scoliosis. So, um, so we're not getting a lot of it. So there's not a lot of comfort level. But what's happening now is there's consumer groups who are reading about the Europeans' ways of treating scoliosis. And so they're coming into our clinic wanting to be treated, so it's on the rise that way. Um, the, there's now starting to be acceptance of physiotherapists because there's starting to be some um, decent level of research that say we can make a difference. So it's an area that we haven't really been that exposed to, but I think we're going to be more and more exposed to. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I think that I, you know, I even just look at my own practice and I feel like I don't see a lot of scoliosis patients, but definitely, uh, you know, I, I often do feel a little bit at a loss in terms of, you know, what's the best approach. And I'm, you know, vaguely familiar with some of these different schools of thought and, and, uh, practice around scoliosis treatment, but it's it's sort of like doing a Google search and try, trying to get yourself yeah. up to speed on that, right? Which isn't, which is definitely not the best way to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, look at improving your treatment planning. Um, so what would you say are the, the core elements for, you know, any scoliosis patient that's coming into the clinic? The, um, so I, I, the question of when does it matter, I think is really one of the most important questions. It's what's got to be uh, framed around. So when the client comes in, sometimes they know they have scoliosis, sometimes they don't know they have scoliosis. Sometimes you're the first person that discovers that they have scoliosis. So um, so that's your first thing is, is to know where they are in the con continuum. Is it the first time that someone's seeing this or is it a known condition? Um, and that's often my first litmus test on it. The second thing is what are their goals? So um, are they there because they're having pain or are they there because they have scoliosis? Um, and those are, can be two very different things. We don't always have to treat scoliosis. Um, so it's really knowing what the client's coming in for. So you get a client who says, oh, well, I have back pain because I have scoliosis. And they've heard that a lot, but that isn't necessarily why they have back pain. They may have just Joe variety uh, extension or flexion intolerant back pain. And, uh, and then I treat that as back pain with an understanding that they have slightly different anatomy. Um, because, you know, as you're thinking about extension, uh, it's got a different um, uh, biomechanics than it would have with a um, client who doesn't have scoliosis. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, so that's the client's goals. So in scoliosis, the, the goal might be pain. The goal uh, might be cosmesis. They don't like how they, they look. 
Um, their goal might be that they want to prevent uh, further progression. If they're early in it, it might be that they would like to avoid bracing. So I think your first thing, just like with every other client, is find out where they're at and then use that to help to formulate. Mo I find when we're dealing with new areas, so for me, I've been in scoliosis for a long time. Uh, my new areas, I'm doing more oncology and oncology spine. And so uh, I'll position a little bit of how I got involved in that and use it in the scoliosis analogy, which is start with what you know. And we know mechanical back pain. So if they're coming in with pain, start with your mechanical uh, perspective and just see if it might be a mechanical problem. But then on top of that, I think the, the scoliolytic is a little bit different because it's a developmental issue, and especially if you're seeing them in their teens. You've got, a, you've got another piece on that. So basically, I'm an adult spinal um, uh, therapist, but the only group of young people I treat are, are spine and scoliosis because I understand the development of the, um, of the pediatric and uh, teenage spine, whereas I don't feel as confident on the rest of the body because I just don't see young people in that group. Um, so people who are dealing with pediatric probably get that a little bit more, but um, it's, you can't treat them as an adult. It is a very different um, kettlefish because the person is growing, there are windows of opportunity. And so your first thing once you get a young person uh, is you need to think about are, are they growing and if so, what would I do because they're growing? Because it's different if they're not growing. So not growing, you know, 15, 16, 17, somewhere along that line, girls a little younger, boys a little bit older. So if you've got a 20 year old presenting your, uh, in your clinic, they're probably not growing. They're an adult scoliolytic. I, I, I don't have to worry about my windows of opportunity as much as if they're a growing spine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so my first thing is, as I say, is I'm going to uh, figure out if I'm the first person seeing them. So they bend over, you do the skyline view, and you notice a rib hump or a lumbar spine hump, and you say to the client, do, I, do you know you have scoliosis? Has anyone told you you have scoliosis? And they either say yes or no. And if they say yes, then I'll want to know, well, has it been documented? Have they had an x-ray? Have they seen a specialist? What have they done? Because depending on their bone age and their degree of curvature will depend on their treatment. So um, in kids, there's something called a risser level. So it's basically your epiphyseal plate on the iliac crest. And it's got a five, a five stage from zero to five, which tells you how much growth they have left in them. And, and there's two factors. There is the factor of how much, uh, what the risser sign is and uh, what curve they, they're at. Okay. So if they are a low risser sign, like say a one or a two, and they have scoliosis, they have a much higher risk of it's gonna progress because they've got a lot more growth in and the scoliosis progresses as they grow. That's, that's when it tends to uh, get, out of, get uh, out of line, becomes nonlinear. Uh, the younger they are when the scoliosis is diagnosed, the more problematic it is, and particularly if they're under 11. Okay. So there are two um, thoughts on how a scoliosis develops. One is called linear and the other one is called chaotic. So linear are usually your adolescence, 
which means that um, you can basically, if you take their Risser sign and you take their, uh, their current curve, you can put it on a, a graph and figure out what they're going to be as far as a curve when they're skeletally mature. And so that gives you a lot of confidence because if they're, for example, they have a 10 degree curve and they're uh, 16 years old, they're probably not going to progress. So there's a nice little um, uh, graph that you can do to do that to quickly uh, sort that out. Kids under 11 are not linear. They're called chaotic. When you get it, you don't know whether it's going to progress, it's not going to progress. So kids have to be, the really young ones have to be watched a lot closer. They also are more likely to come with um, other conditions like developmental issues as well. They might have a, a Marfan's or they might be associated with low tone or things along those lines, um, uh, syringomyelia. Uh, so they need to be watched a little closer. Uh, the adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is, uh, as I say, is typically is linear, so you can sort of graph it and know your risk factors based on it. As long as you go and, uh, and uh, look up your risk factors, it's pretty predictable. Um, and they usually don't come with any other conditions, so you're not thinking, is this an Arnold Chiare, is this a syringomyelia, things along those lines, which you, you want to be aware of because there's other causes for scoliosis other than idiopathic. So when I get my first client and my client in at the beginning, that's what my brain's doing. It's going, um, what degree do they have? How skeletally mature are they likely to be? Uh, am I thinking that they might have something else that um, is causing this rather than, um, uh, than it just being an idiopathic one? And do I need support from someone else in the medical team, either an x-ray or even an MRI if I think that there's something more neurological um, that's underneath their scoliosis. Gotcha. And how do you determine that risk or sign again? Like, is that something that you would do in, during no. the assessment or is that an no, x-ray finding? So, so for a therapist, you have to ballpark it with age. Um, but if, if, if you think it needs to be done, then what should be done is three foot standing views of x-rays. Um, and which they will document what's called the Cobb angle, which is the, um, the, the superior end plate of the vertebrae that's at the apex of the curve. It's, it's um, angle of convergent with gravity. And so that's the, the maximum curvature of it. So we want to know what the maximum curvature is and the Risser level. When you don't have that, what you use is age. And you, there are um, some graphs for that as well to say commonly you're going to, if they've got a 16 degree curve and they're 16 years old, you have basically a 0% likelihood that this will progress. So they've done both sides of the, that equation, one using age and the other one actually using the x-rays. X-ray, gotcha, gotcha, yeah. good. Huh. Well, that's, uh, you yeah, know, there's a lot to think about uh, when you're, uh, you know, triaging a, a scoliosis patient in terms of knowing exactly sort of what path to take with that. And I'm wondering, you know, at what point, uh, you know, as you're assessing a scoliosis patient, would you be referring to a specialist? Like what, what's that, uh, that line in the sand for you? Right. So, um, I mean, the first thing I want to know is what curve they have. Um, unfortunately, the apps and that aren't good enough yet. They're, they're seen as a way that we can follow it once it has been diagnosed. 
but our gold standard still is x-ray. Um, so you want to basically know what their degree of curve is, and so unfortunately we're often going to send these kids off for an x-ray to get it done if they're, um, they're in a growing stage. Um, they have, on average, if they have scoliosis and diagnosed at a uh, young age, they may go through as many as 22 x-rays during their growing time. Wow. So it's nothing, it's nothing to take lightly. Uh, there are now some low-dose x-rays. Sick Kids here in Toronto has something called an EOS, and I think it's got about one-ninth the, the uh, radiation. So they're trying to move towards that, but not every facility has that. Um, so that's my first thing is I want to know, I want uh, to ask them to do a three-foot standing view because you want to see the whole, whole spine. And then you want to see the RISR number. So if you're in a community where maybe people don't know what to ask, I direct a little more. Uh, if you're in an area where the specialist, then the radiologist, for example, in Toronto, all know what a scoliosis series would be. So you should have that uh, as they do it. Um, and so, uh, so then my next thoughts are, as I say, one is, do they have something else? So, you know, do they look like a Marfan's? Uh, do I have some upper motor neuron signs? What am, I, what am I thinking along that line? If I'm feeling okay on that, if I'm not, then I want a specialist in on that one. Um, if that's not the way uh, that it's looking like it's going, my next thought is, do they need bracing? Do they need surgery? Um, so bracing for a long time was controversial. It is not controversial anymore. Again, they've, they've done the studies, they've got the good evidence. Um, so we know that curves uh, above 30, 35 degrees should be braced. And they should be in the brace preferably 23 hours a day, but, um, but a minimum of 12 hours a day. And uh, there's a window of opportunity for bracing. So uh, again, because we don't have the research levels, use puberty as your uh, marker. So for the two years around puberty, bracing will work. But uh, before that and after that, it typically doesn't work. So when you get someone, the next question I usually ask is when did they go through puberty? So for women, it's, you know, when did they get their menstrual cycle? And these are teenagers, so that can be a little embarrassing, but you have to have that conversation. Um, and for the boys, it's, uh, you know, when, I, when do they start showing their secondary sex characteristics? You know, the hair under their arms, things along that line. And so then I use that as my counting period of, okay, I think I've got a, a curve here that might need bracing, and I'm within the two-year window of which it should be braced. I want the risk uh, number and I want the, um, the Cobb angle to determine if they're a candidate for bracing. So it really isn't a very big window that we have to work with then no. in that no. uh, two no. years. So that's, it, yeah, wow. Yeah, so there's a bit of pressure to act on this quickly. Yeah. And, and it's when you become an advocate. So I have a client right now who uh, I guess his family physician didn't word his referral quite right to sick kids and he got rejected. And uh, he's got a 36-degree thoracic curve, and he's 13. Um, that's really at risk for progression. Yeah, so yeah. fortunately, I could go through the back door, and I had them check the referral, and they're like, you're right, he is a candidate for this, and he's now getting in. Oh, okay. But, um, but it, he needed to get in quickly. So I couldn't sort of go through the, uh, the front door channels because it would just be too slow. And by that point, we might have missed an opportunity for bracing. And so then the next element is surgery to stop the progression. So um, the more curve you have, 
and uh, and the more you're growing, the more is likely to continue to curve. So uh, we want the curves to stop preferably at under 35 degrees because it reduces risk later in life for more problems. And we definitely want the curves to stop uh, before 60 degrees. And so uh, 35 degrees is our bracing time, which is why they don't brace until then, because if we don't need to brace, bracing is very intrusive. But we want to try and keep the curve under that. And there's now some uh, uh, research supporting that bracing is more effective with physiotherapy. Hmm. Okay. So there's our role again in that. Um, and then there's the over 60 degrees, uh, they become surgical. And uh, I think as therapists, what we have to realize is we don't have a big role to play in prevention if the curve is that big. We're more uh, maybe pre-oping them. Gotcha. And what's been your uh, experience in terms of uh, outcomes post-surgery? Um, it depends on the surgeon. It depends on the surgery. Uh, I, I'm, I've been around long enough now to go through five generations of surgery. So everyone talks about the Harrington rods. The Harrington rods are a very, very specific type of surgery that I don't think we do at all anymore. Or if we do, it would be on a very, very individual basis. Um, and since then, we've had like the Cottrell Dubassay rods, we've had the Luque rods, we're into the three-dimensional rods. And then I'm fortunate enough to have Dr. Stephen Lewis here at Kids, and he does actually osteotomies into the bone to create the correction as well. So he's uh, creating the most correction I've ever seen in a scoliosis, like they are straight. Uh, one of the most interesting things about what he's doing is he's realized that the interface between the L5 and the S1 vertebrae can be used on a computer program to predict what the spine looked like before it curved. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think for those of us who are manual therapists and work in the spine is we know how important that interface is between the, the sacrum and the pelvis. But it's really great to see that everyone's sort of coming to that same uh, knowledge that the posture and the alignment of the spine really starts at that lumbosacral junction. So he, when he does his surgery, actually does a computer model of what the spine would have looked like before it curved based on its current lumbosacral angle. And uh, his corrections are amazing. And because of that, um, he's the only surgeon I've ever heard talk about energy consumption. And one of the problems with scoliosis is as your curves get bigger, your energy consumption to counteract gravity just gets bigger and bigger. And so in the surgeries, if they get a better correction against gravity, that's one of the reasons the curves do better is because the energy consumption goes down, the pain goes down, um, the risk of progression goes down. And so um, our surgeons are starting to do an amazing job on this. Hmm. And is he the only one in Canada then that's doing that or is that? The only one I'm working with. Oh, okay. Um, I know that he has developed a lot of this technique himself. I don't know how much he's going out and um, teaching it and um, it's spreading out from him. But of all the surgeries I've seen in the last uh, few years, uh, it's the only one of the current surgeries I see being do done that way. But my cohort's all just local. Uh, I do get people from the community, but most of the people I get from the community are old surgeries that are uh, having problems with the old, old techniques. Because the old techniques, a lot of them were what we call two-dimensional techniques. 
Um, so they usually cr um, corrected the uh, sideways curve, but scoliosis has a uh, rotation, a side flexion, and a kyphosis or lordosis. And their corrections have to correct all of that, but the Harringtons didn't do that. And the generations after the Harringtons progressively started to do that, but they have problems because they didn't actually respect the natural alignment of the spine. So we're getting there, but they're, we're still getting there. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, no, it's, it's, the spine is complex for sure. Yeah, and I mean, that's true. Like it's, you know, you're, you're dealing with that rotational uh, change with scoliosis that, uh, yeah, that's true. Like when I've seen the pictures of the heritons, it really is just looking at that side flexion. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of problems. Although when I did a bit of the research, um, there isn't necessarily as many problems as we might think uh, overall, but when you get them in your clinic, they're having trouble. So it's sort of like they're doing okay or they're having trouble. So um, it isn't like at one point I sort of thought the Harringtons are a disaster, uh, but the literature doesn't necessarily support it. It's just the Harringtons I'm getting into my clinic are a disaster. Mm. So that subsection of that, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the different schools of thought um you know it sounds like you know obviously it's more coming out of europe in terms of the actual uh scoliosis treatment and i was just wondering if you can just sort of give an overview for listeners in terms of those schools of thought and i know like you know we covered some of that you know very briefly in physio school but i mean um yeah that would be great to just right. have have some detail on that so, so again, you know, I think as a, as a therapist delving into this, you're, it, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, so there are seven schools of thought of scoliosis, all of which are on the European continent. Um, they have been doing uh, scoliosis exercises for over 200 years. Um, the longest one that's well known is Philip Souchard's school in uh, Lyon, France, and it's about two centuries old. Um, then you get Katerina Schroth, and Katerina Schroth is probably the most well-known for some reason. Um, if you read on scoliosis blogs and the client stuff and the Curvy Girls, which is the um, support group for adolescent uh, girls, um, Schroth has really taken a bit of a hold of that. That's about 100 years old, and that's from um, a place in Ger uh, Germany called Bad so Sobernheim. Uh, so in the spa bath uh, way that the Europeans do that tradition. Uh, her grandson is Rudolf Weiss. He's who I've studied with. So um, uh, scoliologic is basically an offshoot uh, out of the Schroth method. Uh, then there's the Barcelona School of, of, uh, of Scoliosis Exercises. They are again an offshoot of Schroth. Um, Schroth is a little bit more independent exercise. Barcelona is a little bit more hands-on with the client's guiding, but it's endorsed by the Schroth school. So that they're sort of all in the, the same sort of families. Uh, in, in addition to that, there's out of, um, out of Italy something called C's, and uh, that's scoliosis exercises for, I believe, adolescent scoliosis. It's Dr. Negrini. Uh, he's been doing, he and she, I think there's uh, um, uh, two sides of that team. Um, they have been doing uh, some good research. 
So if you go into the Cochrane collaboration on looking at systematic reviews, the Negrini work comes up as some of the stuff that's got the most support on it. Um, and, and sort of in the early review, Cochrane is now doing a second review. There's some other reviews coming up. So there's getting to be some more or work in that direction, at least has some uh, a reasonable level of evidence associated with it. Uh, in addition to that, there's uh, FITS in, um, in Poland, which is Functional Integrated Therapy for Scoliosis, I believe. Um, and and I, I apologize if I'm not getting the acronyms uh, right, because we just keep using the acronyms. Um, uh, DOBOMED is out of Poland as well. Um, their approach is a little different. They're the only one who talks about uh, kyphosing the lumbar spine. So some people consider theirs a little more controversial. Um, then there's side shift out of the UK. It's probably the simplest method. Uh, so it's basically taking the pelvis and side shifting it to be under the um, under the rib cage. Um, the side shift and the C's out of Italy. There's a lot about making it simple for the client in their approaches. That's not necessarily in the other approaches. So that's a, a bit about, I think, the difference in philosophy of them. Uh, to be considered what's called a PSSE or a PSE or an SSE, so physiotherapy specific scoliosis exercises or SSE being scoliosis specific exercises, there's um, some commonalities. So, uh, SOSORT, which is uh, the group that I said is the consumer, the practitioner, and the, um, the surgeons and the researchers. Uh, came across a came up with a consensus of all the things that the um, have to be there for it to be considered a scoliosis specific exercise. So, for example, Pilates is not, yoga is not, um, our um, our back care exercises are not. Um, so, it has to have autocorrection, um, meaning that the person has to be working to correct their curve. Um, it has to have spinal elongation because what happens with the spine is as it curves, it basically uh, screws down. I often describe it as a DNA strand that you have to sort of pull it up and it would straighten. And then if you let it go, it curls down. Uh, they use isometric exercise contractions and everything is individually taught because some people have left thoracic curves, some people have right thoracic curves, some people have two curves, three curves, four curves, sometimes it's one curve is dominant. So those are what has to be there to, for it to be considered scoliosis specific. Um, the one that I found interesting because I was just in Banff at the SOSORT meeting, which is their international meeting. They had each of the representation of the seven school there, and they gave a 10-minute presentation on it. For me, the one that I found really interesting is the one coming out of uh, Poland called FITS, and it's one of the most modern ones. And the reason I found it interesting is it integrates what we know about backs. It integrates uh, Paul Hodges' stuff on transverses. It's starting to look at some of the supports on um, serratus anterior because these guys often have an inhibited serratus anterior, which is why they've got a rib hump, but they've also got a winging scapula. Um, and so they're, they're putting in a lot of very modern 
uh, looking at muscle, individual muscle work. If you take that into the older people, the Schroth, the scoliosis, um, the uh, Souchard, they think that's on the whole too reductionist. That it's what we did in the past, a focus on muscle, and what we do now is we focus on scoliosis movements as a whole. What I've found is for me as a therapist, number one, it helps me to, to come in with it because I've got that knowledge. But there's now starting to be some research on the individual muscles in a scoliosis and their malfunctioning, just the same way Hodges has shown that in low back pain. So there's some really good uh, stuff, for example, on the scapular mechanics and the uh, EMG on the shoulder, what's happening with the upper traps and what's happening in scoliosis. And when I work on the exercises that come with it, what I find is when they do them properly, you feel the right muscles start to activate. And so it gives me another teaching tool, a different way I can come into it and understand how to um, teach my client how to do these exercises to get the right activation. So it's a bit controversial, as I say, I'm leaning, when I, you're thinking about who you're going to study with, I mean, at some point I'll probably go to Lyon and study with the one, the technique that's 200 years old, because I think that there's something to know about where things started. But then I will probably start to look towards the Italians because they've got the, um, the research. And then I like what's coming out of the, um, of the polls because they're taking some of the most current back pain uh, research and perhaps using it a little bit off label. But if your scoliolytic has back pain, yeah, they have back pain. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So are those courses uh, ever offered in North America or, or do you have to pretty much go to Europe all the time for um, this so training? Yeah, so uh, I was lucky enough, I got somehow got on a list to find out uh, when Rudolf Weiss came to Canada. Um, but I was just in contact with him. He has no plan to come over. Um, so I think most of it you have to do over there, unfortunately. And then, of course, there's language barriers on top of it. So you have to find it when it's done in a language that you can understand. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that doesn't make it easy to... Uh to uh, sort of, uh, you know, get some more uh, background on treating scoliosis effectively. Yeah. Are there, do you know if there are any online uh, training programs at all that sort of cover that or is it all in person? I, you know, it's interesting. I haven't looked at the online. Okay. Um, that probably is your, more your generation than mine. Yeah. But um, it would definitely be worth looking at. I mean, there are North American therapists who are very good in this. I mean, there's a group in Ottawa who does Schroth. There's a group down in Minnesota that does it. So uh, I don't know whether they're doing any courses on it. Uh, but if people are interested, I would suggest um, Googling SoSort. Um, SR, uh, Scoliosis Research Society is more uh, surgery-based, whereas SOSORT is more therapy-based, and that would probably be one of your ways to stay connected of what's going on along that. I think we'll see more. As I say, it's coming into North America, um, but I also think we as therapists have to uh, ask for the, um, for the evidence-based. There's uh, a little bit too much of it's the way we've always done it, um, but, uh, and the research yet doesn't show that there's one approach way to do it. So if people are thinking, well, I need to be an expert, there's one approach. We don't yet really have that yet. And even the Negrini, um, 
uh, does a lot of meeting clients' goals through their um, their exercise rather than have a really specific program. So there's very, very different ways to approach this as yet. And we don't have any research to say that one is that much better. In fact, we're just getting the research to even say, does this have value at yeah, all? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Generally speaking, not even just yeah. looking at a specific school of thought. Yeah. So what are any key takeaways that you would have for uh, clinicians here uh, today around scoliosis? Anything that sort of parting words? I, I would say, first of all, you, you, when you're delving into it, I think you've got to delve in a little bit to um, understand the natural progression of it, especially if you're going to teach, uh, work with the adolescents. So uh, do a little bit of homework to know what the natural progressions are. Do a little bit of homework to know when you should be advocating your client, uh, for your client to see someone. Um, don't be the practitioner who says, I'm going to cure your, your, um, your daughter, your son of this, and they won't need bracing and they won't need um, surgery. We can't say that. And we shouldn't be saying that. So work as a team with your with your uh, surgeons and with your doctors, making sure that you're covering the other side of it. But we also have a real role to play, particularly in the 20 to 35 degree curves, because under 20 are unlikely to progress. So if you're seeing them, you can see them for cosmetics, but you're not really probably treating them to stop the curve from progression because it probably wasn't going to do that anyways. Okay. But the 20 to 35 degree curve, no one offers them anything. They don't get offered surgery. They don't get offered bracing. They just get offered wait and see. And that is an area where if we're going to prove ourselves as therapists, it would be about showing that we can help these, these clients from needing surgery. And then the 30 to 55 degree curves of maybe helping those clients to not need, go from bracing to surgery. So if we can help to stop the progression, then we're real value to the, um, to the community, but make claims that are supportable because there's too much, there's too much fear. You get parents in who are afraid their, their child has just been diagnosed they see a future of pain for their client. There is no statistical relationship between pain and scoliosis. As far as it happening, once it does happen, it is worse. Um, but they don't have to have a life of pain. With people like curvy girls, um, the embarrassment level is down because there's a community that they can um, uh, socialize with. So the psychosocial is really important. So you know you want to stay on on top of that. Um, but um, you know, let, let, let's, let's fit in with our evidence-based and offer something because right now therapy as a whole is still seen um, uh, with suspicion because too much has been done around the area of we can stop curves and we don't have the proof for that. But we can help people with cosmesis, we can help them with how they feel, we can help them reduce their pain, their core can be off, they can have neuromotor function issues. Yeah. We have a lot to offer, Yeah. so let's offer it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. Hey, well, Maureen, thanks for being on the show today. I feel like there's so many different topics we could talk around, about around the spine, so I, I hope to have you back on the podcast here soon, so thanks so much. Okay, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Maureen. 
To find the show notes for this episode, just head over to the Ignite Physio website at ignitephysio.ca forward slash blog, and you'll be able to find the podcast there. Uh, I'll make sure to put in some great links and resources uh, in the show notes. And if you haven't yet, I'd uh, love for you to subscribe to our show on iTunes and uh, leave a review. Uh, That will help other physiotherapists uh, find the show as well on iTunes. If you have any questions, topic ideas, or would be interested in being a part of the show, uh, just let me know by dropping me a line at hello at ignitephysio.ca. Hope you have a great day and take care.